and welcome to Sheffield, or welcome back to back if you've been to CMC before. And welcome to the Right Worshipful, the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sheffield, Councillor Anne Murphy. We're very pleased to have you with us this evening. One thing we can be sure of as we reflect on the events of the last two weeks, and we will reflect on a more strategic and business level tomorrow morning in the opening question time, one thing seems true, that sometimes those in power are out of step with the people. For the children and young people of Britain, the 100, 100 pe the, the 1,100 people gathered here at CMC are, in a way, the people in power. Though things are changing and the power is shifting, we still have their ears and eyes and minds. That's why it's vitally important for us to come together like this to consider what we do and to listen to those with strong opinions about being a child in Britain today. It helps us to be the best that we can be for the audience. I said that our speaker today is a man of action. He's been making things happen all his adult life. He's known professionally as a poet, but he's also a campaigner, a very successful one who has made things happen for others, especially those who, like him, had a rough start in life. Through his written work and his actions, he helps, shows, and proves that there is light, love, and support for those young people who need a helping hand to make things happen for themselves. <coughs> Lem Sise Mbe was born on the other side of the Pennines, just a couple of hours away. Very much a northern boy, he was fostered as a baby into a loving home until they decided that they didn't want him anymore. And from the age of 12, he was effectively on his own. Spending his teens in the care system, he emerged at 17 to be told his birth name and given details about his parentage. He quickly determined to become self-sufficient. At 18, he printed and sold his first volume of poetry door-to-door -door, while running his own gutter cleaning business. By 19, he was a literature development worker at Common Word, a community publishing cooperative in Manchester, the city where his heart is, he says. By 21, he had published his first book of poetry and had begun the search for his Ethiopian birth mother, all of which he has explored and explained in his works and in compelling documentaries. Since then, Lem has worked internationally as a poet, a playwright, and commentator. As well as seeing him perform live or on TV, you can see his work on landmark buildings around Britain, from a pub in Manchester to the South Bank Centre in London, where he's an associate artist. Alongside this, he has set up charities and scholarships for care leavers and helped to bring young people in and coming out of care and the struggle they face into the forefront of public responsibility. Last year, he was elected Chancellor of Manchester University. He's also an honorary doctor of letters at Leeds, a foundling fellow, and an MBE. And only last week, on the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, Lem's poem, The Listening Post, crowned the National Ceremonial Commemorations. Please welcome Lemsise. I've taught uh, poetry in hundreds of schools around the country 
over 30 years uh, now. 30 years. How did that happen? And not anymore. Uh, not since the court case. <laughs> Children would often ask me in schools, are you famous? Are you famous? Are you famous? To which I would answer, the answer's in the question. <laughs> I mean, you'd be a bit daft if your aim was to be famous and you thought, poetry. <laughs> now, I, I write for much bigger reasons. Notoriety is a byproduct of notoriety and uh, has very little to do with poetry. Um, I was, I was, I'm going to begin with a poem because I want to, and, and then I thought, no, because it's not on script that I'm going to begin with the poem, but I'm going to. Uh, so uh, there it is. There it is. Uh, I love reading for children. I'm not, I don't do schools anymore, in, in all seriousness, because uh, of time, uh, uh, yeah, and, um, and because I wanted to prioritise what I was doing when doing workshops. It's very easy to immediately assume, ah, they need workshops. Generally, children need workshops. They need an expert in something to enable and empower them to do something as well. <laughs> Maybe we can film it. It is a structure which we can evaluate after it is done. <laughs> I love teaching, uh, which is why I stopped. <laughs> and I use my energies in a different place, but that's uh, concerning young people. Anyway, this poem is called, oh, I want to read that one now. See, now I'm on poetry. Now I'm but I was really going to read a different one, but I want to read this one. It's called The Emperor's Butterfly Maker. And uh, I'll read, that, I'll read th that one. Yeah, I'll read this one. The Emperor's Butterfly Maker. And I'll read it in the voice of Roger McGough. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> My name's Roger McGough. I go up a bit and down a bit and make you think that what I'm saying is quite possibly deep. <laughs> On some level, which you are just not clever enough to understand yet. <laughs> there is a slight melancholy in my voice. So the first part, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I've got a voice in the back of my head, it's going, you shit, get off. <laughs> I've got another one, it's going, no, you're doing all right, carry on. <laughs> I've got one in the middle, it's saying, you two separate now. <laughs> I've got one behind that, it's saying, shall we form a choir? <laughs> I've got one behind that, saying, choirs are so dumb. So th this poem's called The Emperor's Watchmaker. I know any minute somebody's going to say, <laughs> in the audience, they're going to go, why am I here? <laughs> I want some form of structure so I can understand the ethnicness of what he is doing. <laughs> this, this must be in some way diversity, but I have not processed it yet. <laughs> Maybe he will tell me. Thank <laughs> you. 
the Emperor's Butterfly Waker. And that's what I'll do is I'll tell kids, I'll say, I, I, I say, uh, I'll say, you know, there is a town outside of every city. There's a little place, a little shed where a guy is, and he uh, or a woman, and uh, she, he, she or he uh, 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 makes butterflies or mend broken butterflies. And we're talking about year um, uh, just before the top of junior school. That'd be year six or something like that. And uh, and they go, kids will go, no. Oh, oh. <laughs> and I've got to keep a poker face. It's okay, you don't have to believe it. It's all right for you not to believe it, but it is the case. And there is a moment uh, where the... <laughs> it's the most beautiful glimpse. It's the most wonderful thing that we all have forever available to us. The... Just a wonderful thing. That's where all of the great programs that you make. That's what they want to. That's what they want to capture. That moment of openness in a in a in a, in a child, which is available to all of us, all of the time. Um, anyway, the Emperor's Butterfly Maker, and I say this to the kids. By the way, by the way, this book's called The Emperor's Watchmaker, and it's based on Rudyard Kapuscinski's Downfall of an Autocrat. <laughs> and I do tell that to the children. I know how to, you know, get a crowd. The other reason I like reading for kids is because they go, you read one poem and they go, again, 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 again. It's fantastic. You get paid for doing a gig for an hour on one poem. <laughs> it was at that time where I had that thought that I thought I shouldn't be teaching anymore. <laughs> Cynicism has no place in the classroom. Sometimes I see poets do schools and they don't want to really be there. They're doing it for all other reasons. And I just want to kick the shit out of them. <laughs> I don't care how good they are. Kids read how you feel. Anyway, this poem's called uh, The Emperor's... Actually, we all read how we feel. <laughs> this poem's called The Emperor's Watchmaker. I work at the butterfly-making factory on Butter Lane in a town called Fly near a city called Flower. Every day I stick on the wings and I watch them flip from my fingers. Their wings sound like cats purring as they lilt a loop away. Maybe I'll try the wings myself one day. And that's it. That's the end of that poem. That wasn't, don't even bother. Don't even bother. Don't even bother. I know there's about 50 people in this room saying, is he pitching to me? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Let go. It's been a long day. Enjoy, enjoy your diversity. Uh, this, this, <laughs> this, poem, this poem is called, the one that I was going to read is called Pass It On. I just love it. It's like when you fall out with somebody in, a, in what used to be a cooperative. Um, but what I'll say to the kids, as I said, just two days ago, if you fall out with somebody and you're not talking to them anymore, um, it's called Pass It On. Tell Brian to tell Jane to tell Janine to tell Germaine to tell June to tell Maxine to tell Linda to tell Lucinda to tell Mel to tell Gunnett to tell Mizrat to tell Del to tell Ashraf to tell Akin to tell Jimmy to tell Nadia to tell Nazreen to tell Timmy to tell Lynn to tell Jim to tell Anne to tell Jill to tell Joanne to tell Jan to tell Joe to tell Jack to tell John! I'm not talking to him. <laughs> or anyone. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> that was yesterday at uh, Macclesfield Academy. Um, the 11-year-olds were, it's true, that was yesterday at Macclesfield Academy. I don't do schools, uh, but I did do this because uh, somehow it got through my agent. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am not kidding you. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. I could make a lot of money in schools, believe me. I, I do as an ethnic. Um, <laughs> I, do, I do a slavery workshop. It's amazing. <laughs> I uh, basically, I, no, I just, what I do is I just uh, share this with you because it's, it's, it, 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 it tears, you know, tears. Uh, what I do is I chain the children up in the classroom. Uh, I force them into the corner of the room. Uh, after about an hour, I take a little cigarette break. Uh, and then I come back in, and if the teacher uh, criticises me, I say, don't oppress me. <laughs> uh, I continue, I wait for the bell to ring, and I sell them, uh, just before the bell rings, I say, uh, you know, how do you feel? Uh, and then the bell rings, and I say, that is the bell of slavery. <laughs> and, uh, and then I walk out, I've made a hell of a lot of money doing that workshop, just, <laughs> just want you to know. The 11-year-olds here were in transition week to the larger school. Um, the class was 95% white, they were wonderful. I could sense their minds unfolding new ideas that unfolded with new ideas, that caught new thoughts, which in turn unfolded. They were alive. I began to talk about migration, about how we're all migrating much of the time. I said that I migrated from my mother's womb. In fact, one of the children asked me, uh, when did you start writing? And I said, in my mother's womb. I, I texted my mum for a pen. I, I, I could just see them trying to get hold of the concept. <laughs> you know, it's just wonderful. No. I said that I... I <laughs> and then somebody said, somebody said, you need a torch? Something like that. <laughs> I said that I migrated from... One of the reasons that I stopped doing schools is because I started to know the answers to my own jokes. And I started to know the answers to my own uh, um, uh, search for original uh, imagery, for example. And I, I didn't like the fact that I knew what was coming. Um, uh, I feel like if you're a guest in a school, you've got to be special. And special things have got to happen. Um, so anyway, I said, that, I said to them that I migrated from my mother's womb into the open air. I said that I migrated from village to village and then to the city. I asked them if animals migrate too. Yeah, came the uh, answer. Birds migrate too. Any others? Yeah, came the answer. Elephants migrate. So I asked them. I did. Where did you migrate to? And a boy held up his hand and said, I migrated when we moved house from one side of the street to the other. We migrated. And so he did, to see their hands raised with such enthusiasm, to answer the question from where did you migrate was, for me, a joy. An impossible concept was not made simple for them. It was made real. They got it. They had the capacity to understand it straight away. The word migrate was described as what birds do and how free are they. I was saying to them, the word migrate, it's our word. As soon as they realised it was theirs, they could see. They could see that they were part of it. They, they were ready to grow wings and fly themselves into higher education like fledgling seagulls on the cliff. And as their answers flew through the air of the classrooms, so did they. It was a wonderful moment. And then I shouted at them for making too much noise and getting overexcited. 
The word migration is mine, it's ours, and migration is what we are. Politics can steal words and ring-fence them, and we need to take them back. The oldest remains were found in Ethiopia, 1974. Lucy, this is the common name, uh, Lucy was discovered in uh, the Awash Valley. 3.2 million years ago is the dating of her. And if you're religious, then look at the Bible or the Quran. They're both full of people in a constant state of migration. And donkeys are too. <laughs> Jess. Now as a means of introduction for you to me and in answer to the director of an art centre, I've had this throughout my career by the way, in the south of England, who told me I get all of my work because I'm black, implying that an indebted, a guilt-ridden industry had through osmosis over 25 years and across the world mutually agreed to employ me, <laughs> to assuage its universal guilt. Um, then I will give you my uh, biog to him. My name's Lem Say. I'm a poet, I'm an honorary doctor of letters twice. I'm the first poet commissioned to write for the London 2012 Olympics. A few days ago I read a specially commissioned poem as part of the National Commemoration of the Somme to the 2,000 people live at Heaton Park in Manchester. I'm the official poet of the FA Cup 2015. It was broadcast at Wembley just before the plays came out and could be found online. My poem on the left field album sold millions in the year 2000. My most recent play was an adaptation of Benjamin Zephaniah's Refugee Boy. My Lambert poems could be found on walls around the country in public spaces from the Royal Festival Hall to the British Council offices in Addis Ababa. The school your poem, Guilt of Cain, was unveiled by Bishop Desmond Tutu in the city of London, where it stands to this day. I read my poetry with Sir Paul McCartney at his book launch, edited by the late great children's author Adrian Mitchell. I'm an MBE. I'm an MBE. A Mancunian black ethnic. The MBE was given to me by the Queen of England for services to literature. My TED Talks from the Houses of Parliament have been viewed by over a million people. And my Desert Island Discs on BBC Radio 4 was chosen as Pick of the Year 2015. The play about my life, Something Dark, has toured the world and, and was made into a, a, an award-winning BBC Radio 4 play. This month, my poems can be found on the new Baba Mal album. I'm Chancellor of the University of Manchester, which has the largest on-site student population in the United Kingdom, is the only Russell Group University with social responsibility as a central goal. In 2014-15, we attracted more than £345 million in external research funding. We have the largest student community in the UK, more than 1,000 degree programmes with 12,000 staff. We're one of the largest employees in Greater Manchester. We have an annual income of over a billion pounds. I've read poetry everywhere, from the Library of Congress in the United States to the Palace of His Imperial Imperial Majesty Emperor Haile Selassie in Ethiopia, from the Botanic Gardens of Singapore to the, to the sonorous shores of Sri Lanka, from Wembley Football Stadium to Maryland Football Stadium, from the theatres of Bangalore to the theatre of Dubai. I've flown to schools in Zurich colleges in, in Virginia. I've taught teachers in Addis Ababa and children in Cameroon. I'm a proud participant of 10 pieces, which described by the Director General Tony Hall as the biggest uh, commitment the BBC has ever made to music education in our country. And I'll be presenting with Naomi Wilkinson later this month at the proms of the Royal Albert Hall. I'm I'm published by Bloomsbury, I'm published by Canongate. My sixth book, Gold from the Stone, is out later this year. I'm patron of the Letterbox Club, who get books to children in care throughout the country. I've read poetry in the Arctic. I've made BBC radio documentaries on W.H. Auden, J.B. Priestley, Bob Marley, The Last Poets, Gil Scott Heron, to name a few. I inspire the Christmas dinners for care leavers in Manchester, London, Liverpool, Leeds. I'm a fellow of the, of the Foundling Museum, where my exhibit, Superman was a Foundling, exhibits to this day. My photograph is in the National Portrait Gallery. I've been photographed by Greg Williams, Steve McCurry, Rankin, and I pity, I pity the young black 
black boy who walks into your art center, who you will use at will to do what you call a tick boxing exercise as you gently push him towards a workshop on urban music. And I pity you that you can make such a statement to someone, me, who it is easy to research. If this is your level of understanding when it comes to someone like me, then I pity anyone of color who walks into your institution. Maybe, maybe, I said to him, I should call the Arts Council tomorrow and give them some feedback as to what you have said to me tonight. One of the greatest gifts I've been given is the knowledge to know my success has nothing to do with, with, with any of that list I've just run down. And then I'll explain why, but first I'd like to share with you the greatest thing that I've ever done in my adult life, the greatest thing that I've ever done. It was to choose and then gather a group of dynamic people together and say to them, I want a Christmas dinner for care leavers on Christmas Day. 6% of care leavers go to university compared to 38% of all young people. One third of care leavers are not in education, employment or training, compared with 13% of all young people. More than one in ten children have three or more placements in 2010. 23% of the adult prison population has been in care and 40% of prisoners under 21 were... 40% were in care as children. A, qu a quarter of young women leaving care are pregnant or already mothers, and nearly half of them become mothers by the age of 24. Nobody's getting paid, I tell to those people around the table. I'm not setting up an organisation. This is not an organisation. Nobody is the boss. Okay, that's how we're going to work together. I want a venue, I want incredible jaw-dropping presents, I want all the young people to get taxis to pick them up and drop them off. <laughs> I want the food to be top-notch enough to be a professional chef. I want volunteers who are all uh, checked and balanced professional and skilled. The organisation steering group must have, have over 100 years experience of working with young people in care. The steering group must have an equal number of creatives on it. Artists, writers, clowns, teachers, anything to stop it becoming institutionalised. There's no organisation, no websites, no letter-headed paper. Also, I want it to be more organised than organisations organised. I want there to be more checks and balances than they checked or balanced. Also, I'm not checking with how many care leavers are in this area. I know we're here. The highest standards of accountability and checks and balances from accredited kitchens to referral forms for the young people. Each Christmas dinner will have a contingency of £5,000. By the way, we have no money. Uh, we must raise the presence from the community and the venue. We must believe in the community to believe in the care lever. Otherwise, all they will do is read about them in newspapers. Jeez, la freaking wheeze. In 2013, it was in Manchester, one group. Uh, in 2014, it was in Manchester in London. In 2015, it was in Manchester, London and Leeds. And this year, it'll be in Manchester, London, Leeds and Oxford. Each area organises independently. A charity holds the money that we've raised and it is distributed. I've written up a how-to guide. There are no workers. There is no empirical structure, which is available. The how-to guide is available to anyone who wants to, it online. It's open source. On Christmas Day, me and a few friends get together a special Christmas dinner video which includes stars from Coronation Street, EastEnders, Breakfast TV, Amanda Holden, Gogglebox, The Only Way is Essex, and they make gentle messages of Christmas wishes only for these people. The only people to have seen those videos are these kids, uh, 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 these young adults. And every now and again, someone special comes down, knitting Gantra stayed for three hours, and he loved it on Christmas Day. What a man. The care leavers were besides themselves that he would spend time out 
out to hear me reading as if I'm reading from paper. Uh, <laughs> Help me. <laughs> I am just a poor boy. So, yeah, I knew it was needed because the worst days of my life have been birthdays and Christmases. And, well, your childhood actually is lived out in your adulthood. And the more that you deny that, the more evident it is. It's been the best day of your life, mate. It was absolutely amazing. So thank you very much. You know, for once in my life, I felt like someone actually cared about me. It was actually a pretty good day. Well, I'm going it was really fun. The food was amazing. Thank you. And I love my presents so much. They're incredible. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for all our presents. Thank you. Thank you. I'll everyone's come together and the vibe and the atmosphere in the rooms. Untouchable, really. Life, mate. Uh, <laughs> I've loved every minute of it, mate. It's been great. We'll do it again next year. I don't want to go home. I'm staying tonight. Christmas party. Blocking. <laughs> you even got Christmas bloody <laughs> and a metal with best mate Worsley. Oh, Thank you so much for everybody that made this day possible. We really appreciate it. Well, I was going to be at home sat on my own all day, just getting drunk. So to be truthful, instead of being at home being depressed, it gave me something to do. So thank you for today. <laughs> it has been the best Christmas because you know, for once in my life, so I felt like someone actually cared about me. And, you know, me and my son got presents and it's not, it's not, you know, every year that I can actually say, yeah, we get presents and someone that is actually looking out for us to buy us stuff. So I'm really grateful. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hiya, my name's Kieran. i just like to say uh, there's never ever been anything like this before. And it puts a lot of smile on people's face on Christmas. And a great get together all together. Fantastic. Yay! <laughs> um, all in all, I want to say, I want to say thanks to the staff who've kind of helped out today, the chef, and all the people who funded it really, and who uh, who made this possible really, because it's been a great day, really good Christmas to remember. Open this, Josh London, that's mine, that. Look at that, Merry Christmas. Okay. Here, <laughs> Josh London, lots of love. From Santa, that's you that. <laughs> Cheers Santa. <laughs> what is it about the day that's made it? Um, uh, all the presents, um, the people that have helped to do it, the get together, um, all of the people that have just loved on us, loved on each and every one of us and we really appreciate it. This coat as well, I've been waiting for a new coat for ages. So uh, I'm just so thankful that I got it and all these presents that we got as well. It's amazing. Little girls Yeah, amazing, amazing. So let's just be, be very clear about this. Thank you. What do I get out of this, right? I'll tell you what I get out of this. I get my Christmases back. Uh, so I, I, I'd ask you the same thing, uh, you know, uh, when doing what you do is what do you get out of what do you do? 
Um, if ever we needed to ask that question, it's now. It's now. Uh, it's at this particular top point in our uh, development, in our growth as a country. If ever there was a time that we have to ask ourselves or, or answer the question, why do I do what I do in this particular area? By the way, I'm, I've put this picture up because I am dying to talk about race. <laughs> And before I begin, I'd like to, to, to uh, dispel a few myths. Um, in my early to late teens, whenever I said I was a black man, there'd always be somebody who says, you're not black, you're a human being. <laughs> you're a human being. A human being. Um, it's like saying to a child, it's like a child saying in a mathematics lesson to the teacher, uh, do you know you're using numbers? <laughs> You know, because I'm a black man, it doesn't mean to say I'm not saying that I'm a human being. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> imagine this, right? I imagine this. If a woman says, I'm a woman, and then a man says to her, <laughs> No, love. You are a human being. <laughs> what would she think about him? How would she ass assess his intelligence? How would she assess her place in his world? No, love. You are a human being. <laughs> what would she think about working with him, alongside him, that she defined herself in such a way that was not good enough because, no, love, you're a human being? As if to deny what he was saying would... Uh, put her out of the human race somehow. As if naming it herself, how she wanted to define herself, was somehow a counter to a, a, a deeper understanding of herself, as given by the man. Um, the alternative, people have said to me all of my life, I don't see colour. I'm, I'm colourblind. <laughs> Are you? Are you really? It's a freaking disability. <laughs> Brain bleed. It's like seeing someone with no legs and saying, I don't see legs. <laughs> Mentally, I'm a paraplegic. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, why do people always say that they don't see color? when they see colour. <laughs> Unless lots of black or white people are sort of sit around and you know, just randomly say to each other, oh, I don't see colour. <laughs> so I get in it now. The only time a person who says that they're colour blind says that they don't see colour is when they see a person of colour. My word. <laughs> if there's one thing I know, it's that racism is in all countries and all cultures. Uh, I've travelled the world and I've seen it. There's racism from Ethiopians to Eritreans and vice versa. Racism from Jamaicans to Bayesians and vice versa. Racism from Indians to Caribbeans and vice versa. From South Africans to Zimbabweans and vice versa. In fact, in fact, truth is, if there is one learned behaviour, and it's learned, that unites the human race, it is... Maybe we should have a concert. <laughs> A racism concert. <laughs> where we all get together, kick ten colours of shit out of each other, and then 
book. <laughs> and so, and just so you know, ladies and gentlemen, I see myself as an Englishman, uh, as an Ethiopian, as a collection of molecules, as an egg. <laughs> Uh, and anything my imagination so creates me to be. My question has never been what am I or what am I not, uh, but uh, why on the basis of the colour of my skin would you think either less of me or do less of me? Um, I am going to share my story with you for a reason. Uh, oh, I, I forgot my clicker. Uh, did I say that out loud? Uh, I've spent most of my adult life proving uh, what happened to me as a child because all family is is a group of people proving that each other exists over a lifetime. Birthdays, deaths, marriages, weekends, holidays you didn't want to go to. All family is is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime. <laughs> and uh, I can't tell you what has taken for me to to find that sentence. And at 18 years of age, I had no one to dispute the memory of me because at 18, I knew that nobody who knew me, who I knew, knew me for longer than a year as a result of a life in care. But that's to jump ahead. Um, it is still with Brexit, not as bad as it was when my mother, this woman, came to this country. This is her at school back in Ethiopia. She came from a generation of pioneering women. She, she came to England in 1966-7 to Bracknell in, in Oxfordshire. She was part of the Emperor Haile Selassie's education expansion program and had no intention to, nor did she, stay in England. She came to study. 1966 was his 50th jubilee and 75 years since he was born. Ethiopia was on a high. Ethiopia took pride in being a country that was not colonized by Europeans. We're a proud race of people who meet the world as equals. Ethiopia is written through the Bible and as we're in Ramadan I should say that Bilal was the first chosen by Prophet Muhammad to sing the Muezzin. Ethiopia is 50% Muslim, 50% Christian and to this day an example of how the two can live civilized uh, together in harmony in the same, uh, same country. My f mother's father asked my father's father if he would, uh, oh, that's her. She's cute as a biscuit, isn't she? You know, the weird, the weird thing is, is that when I got that picture, I was the same age that she was in that picture. And the first thing I thought was, God, she's fit. And that is a true moment that does happen with many children who find their parents, because often they look exactly like the parent did when, they, when the child was conceived. Um, oh, the weirdest thing is that when I found her, uh, anyway, I'll, um, that's my dad. Uh, somewhere on that journey from Addis Ababa, which had, oh sorry, yeah, my father's fa mother's father asked my father's father to take her to uh, England, which he did. Uh, somewhere on that journey from Addis Ababa, which had a stopover in Greece, I was conceived some stopover. She was 20 years of age, she was metaphorically and literally flying from childhood, migrating into adulthood, and England was cold, it was 1967, a few months before the Enoch Powell speech, a few months before Martin Luther King was killed, a few months before the Beatles released the White Album. It's actually the Beatles album. It was only in America that it became known as the White Album. And in America, the words black and white in 1968 and 7 have never been more associated with race. 
In England, pregnant women without a husband were seen as toxic in the community. They needed to be quarantined and their babies taken from them and then detoxified. They could return to their communities only to tell people that they'd been away for a little break. My mother found that she was pregnant. The college where she studied, afraid of the contagiousness of this toxicity, sent her to the north of England to Bolton. <laughs> where she was held in a mother and baby home run by nuns. Those two words, Bolton and nuns. <laughs> I have spent all my life putting this story together and finding evidence so that everything, everything I tell you here is true with proof. I know more about my mother and father than any person should because half of the power of family is what you don't know. In the, in the 1960s, a horrendous system was set up and thousands upon thousands of babies were stolen through the system. It entirely depended on society's collusion. Abuse can only happen to children if we turn the other cheek, if somebody turns the other cheek to them. Um, my mother asked, that's my father, my mother asked that I be fostered, uh, the social worker wanted me to be adopted. Uh, for this he needed her signature. She would not sign, she would not pre be press ganged by the nuns uh, or the social worker. In her third language, English, she fully understood what was going on and what happened is that these women at their most vulnerable were put into these places to make feel, feel guilty and at the point of their guilt they were asked to sign the adoption papers and remember that most of them did not understand what the word adoption meant up until being in that place. And many of them signed those adoption papers thinking they could see their children again. Um, at this point, it is worth saying that the idea that fostering or adoption is something a child or adult should be ashamed of comes from somewhere. The idea that a child and therefore adult should speak, not speak of it or ashamed, be ashamed of it goes back to the time of the poor laws and the workhouses and the founding museum. Children were served with food and bed with one hand and punished for being illegitimate with another. Do you know what I like to do? I go to dinner parties now because that's, that's who I what was that? <laughs> I got to the, if somebody came up to you in the street and said, so, <laughs> you will go, stop now and walk away. You know what I mean? But you do it on stage and people think, oh, he's all right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, dinners and people will talk about their family and I will say, um, you know, I will often say, um, you know, I have to say at some point that I was brought up in cows in children's homes and whenever you hear the word children's homes, all the heads go, you know, and what I'm doing with the Christmas dinners and everything that I'm telling you is closing the gap. Every one of us has got somebody in our family who could have ended up in care. Just go back, go back to the war if you need to go back that far. But actually, often you don't need to go that far. Often it's Uncle Eric that nobody talks about. Anyway, uh, so we're not far away. Uh, anyway, that's another story. But what I like to tell people at dinner parties is this. I say, I'm in children's home. Then the heads go like that. And then I'll leave a long pause because nobody knows what to say. And I'll say, I'll say, for garroting my parents. <laughs> just, just for the heck of it. I'm not interested in charity. Uh, it's, I'm not interested in charity. It's about closing the gap. Um, Dickens saw it. He saw it because it happened to him. Children's writers have, been, have seen the hypocrisy of our society and have exploited the loophole in popular culture because they know that children in care use extraordinary skills to deal with the extraordinary situation of being without a family. Superman was a foster child. 
Batman was, Spider-Man was, Cinderella was a foster child, was kinship fostered by her sisters. Pinocchio was fostered, Pippi Longstocking, James Bond was a foster child, Luke Skywalker was a foster child, Jane Eyre, Oliver Twist was adopted, Annie, David Copperfield, Dorothy Gale was adopted, Lyra Balakwa from Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, Horowitz, Pullman, Rowling, uh, they knew, and that's us, superheroes. And worst of all, we are living proof we are living, the reason that people have not made the connection between these people in popular culture and the child and care who was brought up in children's homes, the reason they've not put the two things together is because we are living proof that dysfunction is the heart, part of the heart of what any functioning family is. We are living, breathing proof of it. And that's why there's a prejudice against the child in care in society. And that's why people have never made the link between Harry Potter and the foster child. You've never heard people say, oh yeah, he was a foster child, like you. That Superman was a foster child, like you. We read those stories to our children in denial that those people are using the same skills as, um, as the child who's a foster child in the street, Harry Potter ran away. Harry Potter got angry. Harry Potter didn't know what to, what to do with his powers of perception. Harry Potter tuned in to how people felt. This is why people haven't recognised us or made the link that the children's, but the children's authors knew. My all-time favourite is the children's character, Elizabeth Salander, the girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> She does schools. <laughs> but she is my own personal all-time favourite. Think about it. Jesus had two dads. <laughs> Mohammed was fostered by his grandparents. The evidence is right in front of us. Children in care are right at the heart of popular culture. And that they are not seen as being in the heart of the culture reveals a prejudice which is th throughout uh, our society. The truth is that as long as there have been blood families, there's been fostering. It's a, actually a part of the familial structure. Moses was a freaking adopted guy. <laughs> Nobody bugs me, you know what I mean? Oh, you're adopted? You're like fucking Moses, mate. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, how, to, how to lose your audience there. In, uh, what you learn? Uh, but but this, uh, this, after all, is about, you know, this is about women, uh, to be honest. Um, not the foster child. If women could just get it together, uh, we would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> women get pregnant, have loose morals. Uh, can be on drugs, are uh, prostituting themselves, have childishly thought a child will help them out. Uh, the problem here is women. Uh, women, uh, women, uh, women. And once we can establish that a woman is a threat to society by wielding the weapon of pregnancy, we have the full moral right to take her baby from her or to convince her that she is not good enough for it forever and to write the story of the baby for, uh, and to write the story for the baby of who her parent is. And this thinking of moral bankruptcy in pregnant women and how to deal with it is also rooted in Victorian times and still around today. Where was I? Yeah, where, yeah, where was I? Where was I? Where was I?
Um, the social worker gave me to foster parents because my mother wouldn't sign the adoption papers. And he said to them, treat this as an adoption. He's yours forever. We'll get her to sign the adoption papers. The foster parents were deeply religious Baptists from the northwest of England, from a small Lilliputian village that seemed held in the grip of the churches, the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, and ours, the Baptist Church. I was a message from God, apparently. I was a gift from God, apparently. This child, this blessed child, I am not, I want you to know, against religion or against the belief in God. A bad practice happens, people do it, and I don't blame their God for that. And so I grew up in Ashton in Makerfield, the only black in the village, and I loved every minute of it. My mother and my father were David and Catherine Greenwood. My granddad was Duncan Munro, and I'd spend my summer holidays in his cottage in Loch Inver. And we would all live happily ever after. I read famous fine books and Secret Seven. I drank pop, I had a grifter bike. I was deeply jealous of Bay City rollers, but I thought they were cool. I wore bags with pockets in the side. I would run home from junior school and get changed and stand outside my gate waiting for Karen Walsh to walk past. So she might see me in my star jumper and beetle crushes. Oh, yes. Um, I received that picture two days ago. I received it two days ago. I'm, I am at a loss for pictures. It's one of the things family does. They take pictures. You were here, there, then. I received that picture two days ago. At 12 years of age, my foster parents had two children of their own and another that was an accident and convinced me that the devil was inside of me. And for this reason, they placed me into children's homes and told me that they would never write to me or visit me again. And that's what they did. Uh, I lost everyone. I lost everything. I lost my mother and my father and my sisters and my brothers and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and my granddads and my grandmas. I lost my town, my church, my school, my parks, my first love. I lost all my toys, my, my clothes, my shoes. I expect they would be useful. I lost uh, everything and there was only one thing they established in me and that was that it was my fault and it was my choice. This is how they engineered this. They asked me if I loved them, to which I responded, uh, yeah. Uh, my mother said that she wanted me to think about the question properly and to look in the Bible and to come back the next day and, and give them an honest and truthful answer. So I thought, if they were asking me if I love them and they are the ones who taught me what love is, then I mustn't love them because they wouldn't ask. But then I would learn to love them through God's name and through his love, I would, I would learn to love them. Praise the Lord, I had come up with it. I mustn't love you, I said the next day, but I will ask God for forgiveness. Um, this was the perfect answer. My, mother, my mother's answer was this. Because you don't love us, you don't want to be with us. And the next day, my social worker, this strange man who used to visit me every week, was waiting for me in the car. This is not therapy. I'm sharing this story with you um, to show the pure power of children and the complexity of childhood and the ability of children. Therapy is therapy. Um, everyone here felt they were doing the right thing. Um, after all, they were, the, you know, the, 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 the social worker was the farmer, the foster parents were the consumer, the child was the crop and the mother was the earth. It was a perfect system set up where nobody would ask, ask the question. The social worker took me away at 12 and I sat in his car and I said, I'm going to ask God for forgiveness. And he stopped the car and he said, none of this, uh, he said, none of this was your fault. Um, for the next six years, I was held in a series of different children's homes. That's one every 14 months. Children came in and out. Staff changed every four hours. The last one was a virtual prison called Woodend Assessment Centre. After 18 years as a child in the state, it was deemed important to assess me. They never called. 
I realized on leaving care that I didn't know anyone that knew me for longer than a year. It's then that I realized very clearly that family is just a group of people proving that each other exists over a lifetime and that family is a group of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime and I had no one to prove that I existed and therefore did I. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it fall, then did it. I was taught how to sign on the dole. I was going from the children's homes, administrative services to adult services. I realised that family is based on the power of suggestion. When are you getting married? You're not getting married? When are you going to university? You don't, you don't want to go to university? There's a book over there. It came the other day. It's about university. And you don't have to look at it. It's just there. Your cousin's getting married. We're going to the wedding. When are you having children? You're not having children. The power of suggestion is one of the most powerful invisible drives in family and it drives you nuts, right? For a child in care, the suggestion is altogether different. If you're naughty, no good will come of it. We were aware of the prison system, the remand centres, the police, the structures built on the perimeters. When I went into care, the first thing I wanted to do was run away. The most natural thing for somebody to do who finds themselves in an alien environment. I realise now that most of us ran away because we wanted someone to run after us. When I left the care system, I was given a birth certificate. It had a brand new name on it, Lem Sisay. They were supposed to give a birth certificate to a responsible adult, but there was none, so they had to give it to me. The social worker who was so angry about what had happened to me and who knew I would immediately begin the search for my family rifled through my files and gave me a letter from my mother. Somebody did love you, he said. She was pleading for me back in a letter dated 1968. A few months after I was born, she said these words, how can I get Lem back? I want him to be with his own people in his own country. I don't want him to face discrimination. She was a 21-year-old woman saying she didn't want her newborn baby to face discrimination. She was writing to a social worker whose name was Norman. He had named me after himself. I have the initials NG tattooed on my left hand. It's what we did in the homes. We tattooed ourselves with Indian ink and a blunt pin. See, when I was a child, there was an effective system for women like her. The government was the farmer, as I said, the child the crop, the foster parents the consumer, and the mother the earth, and it was a closed shop, and it was important to establish when the child left the birth mother a new narrative for the, fo for the foster or adoptive parents to then feed that narrative to the child so that he or she would sense a deep sense of guilt for even asking who their birth mother was. A closed freaking shop. The most important thing to do and at the end of the day, um, it's one of the most humane and tragic things to give your child away for a better life. That's for all those women who did adopt. It's one of the most humane things a human being. Well, look at her. Oh, bloody hell. Got rid. She got rid of it. It's the most humane thing she's done to give a child away because she's been under the belief that it would have a better life. In these cases, the women are the heroines, not in my name. My life up until the 18 years of age had been uh, a lie, and I wrote poetry. I, I bore witness throughout my time in care. From the moment I left the children's homes, I made a, a freedom of information request to see my files. I had to write to the social services as a customer. There were 18 years of files written about me every three months from my birth, and I never received them. I was an experiment. 
They should never know what happened to it or who did it. And within three years of leaving the children's homes, I had a double page in the Guardian newspaper written about my second book of poetry. And it read, Lemsisse has success written all over his forehead. And I knew then that any success would be a nail in my coffin because I was relative to no one. And all our independences and successes are all relative to somewhere, to someone, to something. And that meant that every time I was recognised, it would be a another nail in my coffin but I continued we think ourselves independent I have a wife I have a child I have a house I have a job and we look back at our parents see what I've done or screw you I've done it but we're looking back to a point of reference from where we are independent we're only independent because we have a point of reference it is all relative and you re only realise this when you have children yourself and you start doing the same thing to them. Now, will you cut your, cut your blooming, eat your food, eat your, eat your sandwich, eat your sandwich. And you hear your own mother saying the same thing to, you, dad, to yourself and you feel the sense of resentment that you had to her and you find yourself doing it and you don't call her up to say, I'm sorry, I resented what you did, I'm doing the same thing myself. That's the privilege of family, and that's what I didn't have. And I wouldn't wish it on my own worst enemy to know what I know about the love between a parent and a child and not have children, as I don't. I knew that before it happened to you, I would have to wait for my... Oh, God, yeah. When I left care, I realised that I would have to wait for my friends to have children, to understand what I understood already. I would have to wait for them to lose a parent to realise that I knew that... It took me from the ages of 18 to 32 to find my family. I used all of my resources, what I made from poetry, <laughs> to do it. Uh, and now I found them all over the world, all over the world. Not only did I find my family, but I found a country. I can safely say that I'm both British and Ethiopian, that I performed in Addis Ababa to packed audience of my own people, recorded BBC documentaries then, and that, and, and that it is we who are excluded and who know the greatness of pain that will do our utmost to stop it happening to anyone else of any race, gender or sexuality. I'm not defined by my scars, but by the incredible ability to heal. Do you have any idea how important it was for me as that child to see the face, <laughs> to see the face of Fluella Benjamin on the television? Do you have any idea? what that meant to me, to see a black face along with other white faces. And I could look at it and go, that's, that's something about that. I didn't meet a black person until I was 10. I didn't know a black person until I was 16. I didn't meet a black person until I was 10. So I peered through the television at you, Fluella Benjamin, with your beads and your songs and your absolute otherness. And on some level, I knew that I was not colorblind. I was not invisible. I was somebody and I mattered. And I dedicate this entire keynote address to you, Fluella, and to the incredible Caribbean people who have fought tooth and nail on the front line of unfriendly, disrespectful studios and venues up and down the country teaching lighting technicians that they need to light black skin properly and who smiled in adversity so close to the word diversity adversity thank you and thank you to those who have learned that your way of living um 
Fluella. Uh, and leading by example, first and foremost, is the ultimate lesson for us all, especially right now. For me, it's not about political correctness at all. The world is made better by seeing more people from the world in whatever we do. This is an anomaly. Sesame Street used black characters against the prevailing wind of racism. It's not political correctness. It's about the market. And it's about the truth. The future is what Fluella and those commissioners who commissioned saw. Uh, and to make a, a better show and a, a better society, um, it must include people of many different races. The act of doing it is a celebration of humanity. And to be honest, the internet's around. <laughs> it is the ultimate celebration of migration. I should end on a quote. When I came to you, I came to the registration, to these beautiful, incredible young minds. And the... The young girl who's darker of skin, uh, she wasn't there. So I was met by a wall of white. And, and they're all incredible, by the way. Each one of these young people are incredible. No doubt about it. But the thing about diversity is it has to happen on every level. And it's incredibly empowering for everybody. I'm so honoured to have been invited here. And I just want to thank you for, uh, for listening to me. The truth is, is, is that when you see that, you have to ask a question. Do you, are you with me? And it's in front of you. And it's in front of you. So it's not complicated diversity. It really is not complicated. We make it complicated because often we're quite defensive about it because it shows a, a certain ad, possibly inadequacy in us. But I don't believe that we are inadequate. I do believe that we asking the questions leads to great answers. I, I'm, I'm done with guilt. We've got the answers. Children's TV in particular has been incredible for featuring black characters and characters of other races and disabilities. I mean, way ahead of the, ahead of the game. I don't want to end on a negative. Oh, don't, oh. <laughs> it's been an honor and a pleasure, thanks a lot. Thank you.